Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this podcast, I read through the Library of America collection 100 pages at a time and try to learn what I can learn from America's greatest writers. In this episode, we will continue our study of Herman Melville by starting his brilliant epic, Marty. Let's do this. A few things to start with. I don't fully get it. Why does this book not get more love? I know it's long, and I know it can be disjointed, but it's overflowing with imagination, beautiful imagery, interesting characters, and such playful language. Who cannot feel the excitement of our characters as they set out for a new island and discover a new land on their endless quest for Ela, a mysterious albino woman? The open-ended climax of the novel is one of the most Promethean statements in American literature that stands by the closing passages of Huck Finn. We're given a seafaring Viking, an islander and his troublesome wife, a blonde Polynesian princess that becomes the ultimate MacGuffin, and the Pacific Island's greatest philosopher. We even have an island of surfboarding criminals who worship a five-eyed and ten-handed god. By throwing off any presumption of realism, Melville can be as allegorical as as he wishes. But I think we might be missing the point somewhat if we focus too much on kneeling down what one allegory is supposed to be. The story is just fun and joyful, and I love it. But there is bad news, too. Despite my enjoyment of the novel, there's plenty to criticize here. Melville certainly baits and switches the reader, who are introduced to a sea story only to get a social and political allegory. The central figure of the novel, is uh, Ela, is, is just a MacGuffin. She's just there to give the hero something to chase. And she has some symbolic qualities too, but she's essentially there to keep the story, to keep the characters pushing on from island to island. Our narrator merely sits on the side for what seems like hundreds of pages as a philosopher, a poet, and a demigod king and a historian talk about philosophy. Now, if the scattered philosophical conversations make up a general theory, it would take far too much work to sketch it out, and certainly it would take someone more skilled in the craft than me. Fairly likable characters disappear. One that stays behind is unceremoniously killed off-screen. Another abandons the quest not long after it starts. In this way, Melville is showing the transition from reality to fantasy, but we really mourn the departure of these characters because they brought us a lot of realism, and they're, they're fun characters. They're, they're, they're fun to watch. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, I guess it's a failed effort, but if you don't take it too seriously, it can be a lot of fun. And when Melville turns his back to hard realism in his next novels, or turn back to hard realism in his next novels, I, for one, miss some of the playfulness that he expressed in, 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 in Marty. And I know there's people who see Moby Dick as kind of the completion of what Melville was trying to say in Marty, and I guess I'll come back to that thought when I get to Moby Dick, whenever I do. Um... So, is Marty a sequel? It seems that Melville originally intended it to be. Omu ends with the character Taipei setting off on a new ship, ready to explore a new part of the Pacific. Melville's first two novels were fairly successful, so it makes sense that he would have stayed, you know, kind of doing what was working for him. But by the time the novel's completed, Marty is another beast altogether. It's, it's not at all like the first two novels he wrote. Um, and it's clear from the opening pages that 
Melville is going off in new directions. He's not just continuing the story of the hero from the first two novels. Our ship's name has changed from Leviathan to the more cosmic name Arcturian. In fact, we are ordered by Melville in the early chapters to stop looking at the water and start looking at the sky. Um, And this actually happens a lot. There's a lot of this novel spent on a whaling boat very close to the sea. Um, But also there's a lot of imagery and suggestions and just comments on the sky and the night sky and and the stars. The character's name is changed too, to Taji. This is the name given to him by the natives who see him as a divine figure. But he's going to go by Taji as far as um, most of the novel is concerned. Um, so why not with these changes? The novel clearly shows we're not in Kansas anymore. Um, so there it is. Another change is that Dr. Longghost is gone, completely gone. He was a character who played a major role in Omu, and he left with the narrator of that novel. Um, so in any literal sense, we're not continuing the story of where we left off on Omu. Whether there's thematic or kind of metaphorical connections, this is another issue altogether. But um, certainly we're not literally continuing the story left off in, in Omu. So in Omu, I gave you a play-by-play. Um, for Marty, I'm going to take, um, take it in 50-chapter f- chunks. I'm going to try to do four episodes, each with about 50 chapters. And yes, there are 195 chapters in this very, very long book. I'll try to provide a brief summary, jump around a little bit on themes, read some passages of the novel, because maybe that's the best way to go at this, is to actually see what Melville is actually to to say. And I just got to warn you, I don't think I'm going to be able to even scratch the surface of this novel. It's just so rich and so thick and... The language is sometimes very a little bit opaque. Sometimes you're not even clear where you're at. And much of the novel is in various asides in conversations about philosophy or history, and they may not make the most interesting listening. But um, I'm going to try to hit some of the highlights as I see it. The novel begins in a familiar place. The narrator is a common sailor on board a whaling ship, and he wants to get off. And we've seen this before um, in the first two novels by Melville. The reason given this time is that the captain has spent too much time at sea and it's likely not reaching land for months or years or worse. He seems to want to explore the North Pacific for whales, so he wants to get off before they end up freezing to death in the, you know, wherever. He convinces Jarl, a Scandinavian sailor, to help him escape with one of the whaling boats. They make it off the boat, which they call the chamois, the chamois. Well, I'll go with, I'll go chamois. After many long days at sea, they begin to despair, but they find they run into a derelict ship. They board the ship and later learn that it's populated by two Pacific Islanders, Anatu and Samoa. And they're a husband and wife pair. They tell their story of how they came in control of the ship. Basically, they seized it when a group of biracial Pacific Islanders killed off the crew and left the ship behind. And, and these two guys got left on the ship. It's kind of a fun little story. Um, so on this new ship, it's called the Parky, they move on, uncertain of their location or destination. With plenty of, su- plenty of supplies and drink on board the Parky, they have a fairly relaxed time for a while. Anatu is revealed to be stealing from the ship's stores, which strikes the narrator as a bit odd given their circumstances and the dependence of these characters on one another. Samoa agrees to lock up his wife at night. Jarl would prefer to kill her. Um... A storm hits and nearly sinks the ship, but Anatu dies, uh, getting rid of that problem. 
They're forced to abandon the ship for the the chamois. They have to go back on it. Um, the parky sinks. Now they're closer to the sea and they can enjoy this beautiful bioluminescence of the sea life. And I'll, I'll, I'll talk about this a little bit later on. They find another boat on the horizon. They approach it and they see that it's actually some islander canoes commanded by an old priest. They learn that there's women on board who are being prepared for sacrifices. So, of course, they fight. Um, the narrator and his companions capture the priest um, and the beautiful white-haired woman alongside it with bleached um, white skin. She's kind of albino or something. Uh, this woman is Ila, who states she is from Orulia, the island of delights. They liberate Ila and set off for Orulia. Chapter 50 gives us some look at Ila's background before um, she was captured. So that's the first quarter of the book, uh, so to speak. And of course, I passed over a lot of details, but the story is a fairly straightforward and realistic at this point. Only at the very end are we introduced it to the more mythological Polynesia through the character of Ela. Yet the entire book is much more imaginative and playful and creative. Um, even when discussing old themes like the desire to desert, Melville lays it on thick with incredibly rich language. Um, here we go. Now this is the most unforeseen determination on the part of my captain to measure the Arctic Circle was nothing more than less than a tacit contravention of the agreement between us. That agreement need not be detailed, and having shipped but for a single cruise, I have embarked aboard his craft for one, as one must put one put foot in stirrup for a day's following of the hounds. And here, heaven help me, he was going to carry me off to the pole, and on such a vile errand too, for there was something degrading in it. Your true whaleman glories in keeping his harpoon unspotted by blood in aught but cacolat. By my hand and dome, it's touched the knighthood of the tar. Sperm and spermaceti. It was unendurable. Wow. I mean, there it is. It's, I mean, thematically, it's similar to what happened in other novels, but the language Melville uses in here is, is, is just much more playful and, 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 and fun and, and a bit weird at times, too. Equality and solidarity are thematically important from the opening passages. Um, this is first explored through the narrator's relationship with the with Jarl, who is often described as just simply as a Viking. So we'll just go with that. He's a Viking, uh, a Scandinavian. And here's his description of, of Jarl. Yet Jarl, the descendant of heroes and kings, was a lone, friendless mariner on the main, only true to his origin in the sea life that he led. But so it has been and forever will be. What yeoman shall swear that he has not descended from Alfred? What dunce that he is not sprung of old Homer. King Noah, God bless him, fathered us all. Then hold up your heads, O ye helots. Blood potential flows through your veins. All of us have monarchs and sages for kingsmen, nay angels and archangels for cousins. Since the antediluvian days, the sons of God did verily we wed with our mothers and irresistible daughters of Eve. Thus all generations are blended, and heaven and earth are one kin. The hierarchies of seraphs in the under uttermost skies, the thrones and principalities in the zodiac, the shades that roam through space, the nations and families, flocks and folds of the earth, one and all, brothers in essence, oh, but we then brothers indeed, all things form but one whole, the universe a Judea, and Jehovah is its head.
Well, so this is our argument for social equality, and it's, it's given throughout the book at various times. Um, now, we spend much of this novel closer to the sea than ever before. We see animals of the sea, not just mention, not just a mention of whales and whaling. We actually are in the sea. We see the sea. And Melville richly describes the fish and other creatures of the sea as he does. In the same way, we feel the danger to the characters, and then we feel the danger they face much more greatly. In fact, the characters in Taipei, yeah, there's some danger there, but it's never really that serious. It's more psychological. It's in their minds. The danger characters feel in Omo is really less about their being affected by violence, but falling ill or, you know, just being subject to the vagrancies of, of the ruling class. Here, the characters are in much danger. They're literally on a whaling boat in the middle of the ocean with, with nowhere to go. Um, and Melville spends the time to describe the sea very closely. Um, Had not our familiarity with the business of whaling divested our craft's wild motions of its first novel horrors, we had been but a rueful pair. But day-long pulls after whales and ships left miles astern, the entire dark nights passed moored to the monsters, killed too late to be towed to the ship far to leeward. All this and much more accustoms one to strange things. Death, to be sure, has a mouth as black as a wolf, and to be thrust into his jaws is a serious thing. But true, it most certainly is, and I speak from no hearsay, that to sailors as a class the grisly king seems not half so hideous as he appears to those who have only regarded him on shore and at a dis differential distance. Like many ugly mortals, his features grow less frightening upon acquaintance and met oftener and sociably. The old adage holds true about familiarity breeding contempt. Thus too with soldiers. Of the Quakering recruits, three pitched battles make a grim gr grenadier, and he who shrank from a muscle of a cannon is now ready to yield his mustache for a sponge. And truly, since death is the last enemy of all, valiant souls will taunt him while they may. And rather, should the wise regard him as an inflexible friend, who even against our own wills from life's evil triumphantly relieves us. So that's him on, on the death uh, that's faced by sailors every day. Um, as for animals, we get, a, we get a closer look at the animals as well, not just the horror and the danger of the sea, but also the animals. Um, this is on page 699, uh, where they describe a certain type of shark they run across while on the Chikamua. Look again, here comes another. Yar calls it a bone shark, full as, lar full as large as a whale. It is spotted like a leopard, and tusk-like teeth, tusk teeth overlap its jaws like those of the walrus. To seamen, nothing strikes more terror than the near vicinity of a creature like this. Great ships steer out of its path, and well they may since the good craft Essex and others have been long, at by sea, long been, been sunk by sea monsters as the alligator thrust his horny snout through a Caribbean canoe. Ever present to us was the apprehension of some sudden disaster from the extraordinary zoological specimens we almost hourly passed. Okay, so there's these kinds of descriptions of, of the sea life. So just the natural world plays a much bigger threat to us. Um, but not only that, we actually get poems about the sea life and life at sea. Uh, this is jumping ahead a little bit to page 812. We fish, we fish, we merrily swim. We care not for our friend nor our foe. Our fins are stout, our tails are out. As through the sea we go, 
Fish, fish, we are fish with green gills. Naught disturbs us, our blood is at zero. We are buoyant because of our bags. Being many, each fish is our hero. And then it, it goes on and on like this. Um, another theme in this early part of the tale is the loneliness of our narrator. Um, and I think that's going to kind of be an overarching theme going on because by the end of this first quarter of the book, he meets the love of his life. He meets Ela, who is this love interest. And it's more of that. It's kind of a cosmic love, of course. But he, he meets her and he, he finds his companion and then he immediately loses her um, and spends the rest of the novel searching for her, never really to find her. Um, so loneliness is established pretty early on in the book. The loneliness of being away at sea, particularly in this little whaleboat. Um, what loneliness, this is on 697. What loneliness when the sun rose and spurred up the heavens, we hailed him as a wayfarer in Sahara, the sight of a distant horseman. Save ourselves, the sun and the Kamchamois seemed all that was left of life in the universe. We yearned toward its Jorgund disk, as in strange lands the traveler joyfully greets a face from home, which there has passed unheeded. And was not the sun a fellow voyager? Were we not both wending westward? But how soon he daily overlooked and passed us, hurrying to his journey's end. Um, so if we're closer to the sea, closer to danger and closer to death, we're also closer to the stars and the magical. The first evidence we see that we're perhaps entering a magical world is in chapter 38, and it's called Sea on Fire. This chapter ends with a scientific discussion of this type of illumination, but it is nearly magical to read about. It's, it's really well done, um, describing just the bioluminescence of, of the sea around him. Slumbering in the bottom of the boat, Jarl and I were suddenly awakened by Samoa. Startling, starting, we beheld the ocean, a pallid white color, corsicating all over with tiny golden sparkles. But the pervading hue of the water cast a cadaverous gleam upon the boat, and so we looked to each other like ghosts. For the many rods astern, our wake was revealed in a line of rushing illuminated foam. Here and there, beneath the surface, the tracks of sharks were detonated by vivid greenish trails, crossing and recrossing each other in every direction. Farther away and distributed in clusters, floating out to sea like constellations in the heavens, innumerable medusa, the species of small round refligent fish only to be met with the South Seas, only to be met with in the South Seas and the Indian Oceans. Um, so that's the, the creatures lighting off this bioluminescence for the appreciation of our, of our crew. Um, we have uh, a more acute example of violence between Pacific Islanders and the, and the Europeans. It was more hinted at in the other books, Taipei and Omu, but here we actually get to kind of partake in violence a lot more directly. There's a bit at the end of Taipei, uh, of course, and it's hinted at in the backdrop of that work, but it's um, described here. Um, the central action of this novel is this battle between these biracial islanders as they so, as they seized the, the parky and killed off the crew. Um, now, in addition to the narrator, in this first part of the story, we really have three important characters. We have Jarl, who is the quintessential hard-nosed sailor, very practical, willing to kill if he needs to, and wants to get the stuff done. He's short-tempered, 
He doesn't want to deal with the Islander woman Anatu at all, uh, preferring to kill her. Um, so he's kind of a composite figure of, of the sailor. Samoa is a Pacific Islander. Um, he's a more diverse figure that really can't be nailed down. Um, Melville writes of him as kind of a portrait. When talking about his self-amputation of his arm, the narrator attempts a description of this man. Um, so basically he's telling the story of the battle and how he survived and how his arm was injured. And then he had to self-amputate his arm. So this allows us to know something about this guy Samoa. Um, in Polynesia, every man is his own barber and surgeon, cutting off his beard or arm as occasion demands. No unusual thing for the warriors of Varvu to saw off their own limbs, desperately wounded in battle. But owing to the clumsiness of the instrument employed, a flinty serrated shell, the operation had been known to last several days, nor will they suffer any friend to help them, maintaining that a matter so nearly concerning a warrior is far better attended to by himself. Hence it may be said that they amputate themselves at their leisure and hang up their tools when tired. But thus beholden to no one for aught connected with the practice of surgery, they never cut off that which their own heads, that which I that ever I have ever heard, a species of amputation to which, metaphorically speaking, would be independent sort of people of islands who are addicted. Um, all right, so Sabo is kind of your quintessential um, Pacific Islander. Um, his wife is really not that important. She's she's a thief and the troublemaker, um, and she dies uh, early in the story. So she kind of falls out of the tale. She's not really necessary to Melville's story. The third important character we, we meet in the first quarter of this book is Ela. She's actually described about three times in about a period of 20 or 30 pages. Um, our initial description of her goes a little bit like this. Her name was Ela, and hardly have the waters of Orulia washed white her olive skin and tinged her hair with gold. Then one day strolling in the woodlands, she was snared in the tendrils of a vine, drawing her into her bowers. It gently transformed her into one of its blossoms, leaving her conscious soul folded up in a transparent petal. Here hung Ela in a trance, the world without all tinged on the rosy hue of her prison. At length, when her spirit was about to burst forth from the opening flower, the blossom was snatched from its stem and borne by the soft wind to the sea, where it fell into the opening valve of the sea, which in good time was cast onto the beach of the island of Ama. Well, I don't know if that helps us very much. Um, later on, we see how, how Taji's companions see her. Um, and we get a chapter just called Ila, Jarl, and Samoa. This is chapter 47 of the book. Um, well, essentially, Ila kind of seduces the mind of, of these men who, who come to see her. Um, a few pages later, we get the narrator's view of Ila. And here's what he says. This is a bit more clear of a description than we, we get in other places. Of her beauty, say I not. It was that of a crystal lake in a fathomsome wood, all light and shade, full of fleeting revealings, now shadowed in depths, now sunny in dimples, but all sparkling and shifting and blending together. But her wild beauty was a veil to things still more strange, as often she gazed so earnestly into my eyes, like some pure spirit looking far down into my soul, 
and seeing therein some unturned face, I stare in amaze and ask what spell was on me, and thus she gazed. In her accent, there was something very different from the people of her canoe. Wherein lay I a difference, I know not, but I was enabled her to pronounce with readiness all the words which I taught her, even as I was recalling sounds long forgotten. All right. Um, Eli is completely outworldly at this time. If you still think you were in a normal sailor's tale at this point, you're really not paying attention. Uh, Eli is basically magical. She's kind of beyond description. It's, it's, he's only capable of contrasting her to, to uh, natural beauty. Um, now, it seems to me that at least Jarl and Samoa, these characters are composites. Jarl is the composite of Western seamen. Samoa is the composite of the Pacific Islander. Ela is not the composite of Pacific Island women. Um, now, maybe the draw of, of, of the Pacific Islands to Westerners is to some degree, and you certainly see it in Melville's work, to some degree it's, it's sexualizing those islands and the women of those islands. But that's not what we get here. We, it's something beyond that. It's near mythological beauty and pull. Um, well, sorry for quoting so much and sorry for going on for so long. Um, this text seems to almost require tasting Melville's words. Um, well, thanks for listening uh, to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Uh, feel free to contact me at 100 pagescast at gmail.com. Um, if you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, rate, and share. In the next part of Mardi, our motley crew finds an island and begins to fully enter the mythological Polynesia. And I hope you'll join me for that in the next episode.